0: Monday, Monday, hey, that's an old pop song from the sixties. Uh, always pretty catchy. I think the mamas and Papas did it. I could be wrong about that. I am often wrong. don't like to admit it, but it's obvious, so you might as well admit it. I always found like working with kids if I ever did something foolish or clumsy in front of a group of students and say I was giving a talk or something, and I tripped over the microphone. There wasn't a whole lot of uh good and trying to pretend it didn't happen the best i could do and the best we could do in those situations is kind of make fun of ourselves kids like that they like when uh, adults don't take themselves too seriously now there's a fine line don't want to be a jokester with kids and lose respect but the best teachers i found really had this uh had these two different qualities and they could kind of turn them off and turn it on as needed. It was both being serious and silly at the same time, or in terms of being appropriate. So kids like to laugh, just like all of us do. But if you're a teacher, you have to convey knowledge and, you know, push them to do their homework and learn and all that stuff. And that tends to be more serious. Yeah, uh, but. Being being silly in the midst of that's like spice. It helps make the dish of learning more enjoyable. And the best teachers that I've come across in my lifetime had that unusual combination of being very serious. The kids kids respected them uh, and didn't want to disappoint them more than anything. It, it wasn't that they feared uh, feared the teacher, although that could happen. It's more they didn't want to disappoint the teacher because they cared about the teacher and they liked the teacher because the teacher liked them. Uh, I can think of several teachers in my former high school that would like that. They got great performance out of the kids academically, uh, but also were able to be human and funny. I always respected teachers that opened up a little bit of their personal life. Not too much. It gets weird. You know, you don't want the teacher being like a teenager and telling too much. That's a boundary crossing. Let me get a sip of coffee here. I was joking with a friend of mine yesterday at a graduation party for a uh, young man, and uh, I don't see her a lot, but she owns a cafe in Lidditz called Slate, and she said, could I sponsor your program, we were just joking around, for like five bucks, so I will give her a shout out, Slate Cafe in Lidditz, you owe me five bucks, seller. only kidding, Uh, so the uh, silly and serious balance is super important, Um, so... If you make a mistake, try to make fun of it. That's probably the best way of doing it. Uh, last time, in the last podcast, we got in a little bit about how meaning and morality is derived from our eternal nature. And I don't say those things lightly. I don't just say those things and not back them up. So I wanted to get into a little bit more details today about that, and I'm going to use uh, Claire Carlisle's book, Philosopher of the Heart, The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard. And inside this book, she obviously quotes soren a lot and the passages we 're going to talk about today are from fear and trembling. The parts that I actually do understand okay, so how do meaning and morality derive from eternal the eternal nature of humanity and specifically our individual you know existence we don 't go into some great great cosmic ocean and become cosmic uh, cosmic paramecium floating on the uh, on the waves of eternity with no consciousness, we retain individual consciousness after death. Now, I haven't been there, I can't get a lot of details on it, but I've had some experiences in my life that indicated that I was an eternal being, that were very real, they weren't drug induced or alcohol induced or schizophrenia, they were the most lucid experiences I had have had in my life and changed my life, pretty much reset my orientation to look beyond this life. I found in my own life the ability to make changes in my life when I started having an eternal perspective. It gave me somewhere to stand, like Archimedes says. When I just thought life was all about just this uh, existence on the planet, I felt trapped. Um, But I figured if I lived for eternity and I had confidence that I was going to live for eternity, I could take on certain issues and problems in my life and make progress. Because I had a lot of time, you know, if not here. I would make uh, continue to grow and learn and uh, go go in that direction as a uh, as an eternal being. I don't I don't think that we're stagnant in eternity. Uh, I think we become more of who we are. We're here like a seed turns into a plant that goes in that direction an eternal nature. So uh, where do I go with this? I want to talk a little bit about evolution and how if you one is purely a materialist where they believe there's no spirit world there's no soul there's no eternity all that we have is matter matter is the only thing that exists there's no that's there's no need for god there may be a god but there's no need for one um yeah i think people differ on that but a, a pure materialist doesn't see god as a relevant question like uh carl sagan uh, back in the day with cosmos the universe and the cosmos is all that's ever been and all that will ever be um uh, So that's the take on materialist view of the world. And I had a really interesting uh, experience back in my doctoral program at Temple University down in Philadelphia. I was part of a uh, PhD program in educational psychology, which makes sense because I work in education. I wasn't into counseling psychology. It seemed a little bit too mushy to me. Or I didn't want to get into psychological like assessment, like a PhD in psychology, because a lot of it's testing. And uh, uh, parametric testing and and clinical testing and all those type of things. One seemed too loosey-goosey and one seemed much too um, structured and much too um, analysis-oriented. Like somebody's a psychologist in a clinical sense. They're very, very analytical. Usually, if they do testing, at least, that would be the kind of psychology I would have done in school, probably. That's what the position is for somebody with that kind of training. So inside my doctoral program, we had a wide array of people from different disciplines. They had disciplines from all over the board. They could be ILT uh, directors in their school districts, and that's instructional learning technology. They were in charge of uh, acquiring the hardware and software to put a uh, a technical computer background, uh, background and backbone into the school. So those are called ILT people. I'm just trying to think of who else I came across. Special ed teachers, you know, people that worked with uh, disabled uh, children, learning disabled children. That's still a term that we use. That's appropriate. I was an LD kid. I have no shame in admitting that. I had problems with learning. I meant I had learning disabilities. Uh, uh, Let's see who else. There could have been other people, but the one I'm going to think about specifically was a biology teacher, and I think he had at least his at least his. he, He obviously had his bachelor's in biology because he was a biology teacher. You have to have training and courses in that discipline and certification in that discipline to teach in Pennsylvania. But I think he also had a master's in biology, I'm pretty sure. And he didn't want to go for his Ph.D. in uh, biology for various reasons, which I don't know about. But he wanted to continue to become a better teacher. And so he was coming into the Ed Psych program to get a Ph.D., so that he could be a better teacher, because educational psychology is about how kids specifically how kids learn now when I use the word kid" that refers to anybody from you know being born until you know nineteen twenty twenty five whatever uh, that's when most of the developmental neurological activity happens in people's brains it's it 's the macro side of of neurological development our brains continue to change and grow or not grow, as we get older, but it's on a much more micro level. And that actually gets into my thoughts about evolution versus uh, macro versus micro. And this biology teacher was really helpful in uh, me understanding more about evolution because I got to talk to him in class. And we had our, we had our discussions and we had our disagreements and our, our conflicts. Um, a primary researcher in the field is Jean uh, Piaget, he was a Swiss uh, biologist-psychologist. Psychology was kind of a nascent field uh, back in the early 1900s. Uh, Jean Piaget had fought in the war in World War One and was very discouraged by it. And uh, it had a huge impact on him. He had a Christian background, but after the war, like a lot of people, he had a hard time seeing that God could be good and permit that. My grandfather was very much the same way on my... On my dad's side, his father had fought for the Germans and came out of it very anti-religious. Uh, Jean Piaget or Jean Piaget, I don't really know how they would say that in Swiss French, but he was what's called a genetic epistemologist, and he, his name for the field was genetic epistemology. And epistemology is just a word for knowledge. It's how we define what we know and how we know it and genetic is obviously ties into DNA and biology so Jean Piaget had a PhD in biology so he had a lot of scientific credentials now when I applied for the program at Ed Psych at Temple it was interesting one of the uh, interviewing committee professors said I don't think you're a good fit here so I being a counselor said, well who is a good fit and the guy couldn't answer my question and it was a rather humorous moment uh, that he couldn't answer his couldn't answer his concern of why I would be a good fit in the program uh, because everybody came from a wide field of disciplines. Uh, so I don't know. He was he was a bit truculent, and I actually had him on my dissertation committee at the end. My advisor when I was at Temple University, the program took me like nine years, which was an extension. I think it's supposed to take seven. It's a lot harder than I thought, and uh, this guy wound up sitting on my dissertation committee too, and uh, I was very fearful that it was gonna be round two, that he would ask uh an obnoxious question and I would have to try to answer it in a diplomatic way so that he wouldn't flunk me from my passing my dissertation. But my wife at the time worked for Hershey and I had brought a ton of candy to the uh the actual oral defense. And I knew once he went for the candy I had him. I knew he was being cooperative and he was the first one to dive into the bag. So I didn't ha- I didn't take any classes with him. He wasn't in my area of specialization, um, but I was very interested in how teenagers learn, how the adolescent brain changes, and how it goes through the developmental stages. And this thing called formal operational thinking. So genetic epistemology, formal operational thinking just step back for a moment is the ability to project beyond your immediate circumstances to kind of look at your lifespan and look at a lot of issues and a lot of options and make decisions like, a, like career development is a good example of that. You have all these options. Uh, an adolescent with good formal operational thinking skills is able to look at all these different options in a fairly cognitive way and make rational decisions on the basis of the information that they acquire and the people they talk to. But this biology teacher was an evolutionist from, from start to finish. He was, he was a hardcore evolutionist. And the difference between like genetic epistemology and learning theory and educational psychology is that the environment and the individual are constantly interacting. So uh, a person will have an experience or an event that will affect how they think about it. Uh, like it's called constructivism. Uh, their Their cognitive structure will be reformed or reformulated and grow on the basis of interacting with the environment in terms of learning now this doesn 't happen in biology you know and this guy was very adamant about this. Biology is like a one way street. The organism changes uh, in a random fashion uh, it 'll just throw stuff out in the environment. And it's either advantageous or disadvantageous for the organism to do that, but there's no guiding hand. These uh, these uh, options through natural selection occur randomly. Uh, the environment's not driving uh, the genetic code to make decisions. It is survival. It's adaption. That's the evolutionary theory. And this guy was adamant about this. He said that people don't understand evolution is one way in that direction. It's the organism... Uh, throwing stuff out in the environment to see what sticks and what doesn't. And there's not really any rationality to it if you don't believe in any like designer type of thesis of uh, God creating uh, evolution to do that. Now, I believe in microevolution versus macro, which means within the definition of species, there's a lot of variation possible. So micro would be uh, things changing, uh, organisms changing and the environment either rewarding it or not rewarding it. And a good example is like a beak of a bird, you know, if there was a certain type of uh uh beak of a of a species of uh, bird that allowed them to poke out the eyes of their enemies, right? And it was sharp enough to do that. That could be an advantage in the environment so that uh that organism versus other other birds of the same same species, or whatever the right term is, would not prosper in the same way because they would be more vulnerable to be attacked by their predators. Right? Okay. So that's the uh, that's what evolution does. It doesn't it doesn't have the two way street like our learning would. It is strictly one way, and it's very random. It's called random selection for a reason. So how does that tie into uh, our 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 Soren Kierkegaard lesson of today? What was happening when Soren was alive, and uh, the the, uh, the Origin of Species was not published by Darwin until uh, november twenty fourth eighteen fifty nine and Soren, or yeah eighteen fifty nine and Soren died in eighteen fifty five so Soren never actually read uh, the Origin of Species by darwin and there was thinking like there was evolutionary thinking before uh, Darwin put this book out there were other people working on the same ideas uh, But Soren would have never read Darwin's books, period. Uh, So Fear and Trembling will warn, this is from the, uh, the biography book that I mentioned previously, Fear and Trembling will warn that once God is absorbed into the ethical sphere, he will become dispensable and eventually disappear altogether. And although the ethical theories of Kant and Hegel have sincerely accorded to God the highest place, they are implicitly secular, reducing god to uh, moral life makes human conventions laws and judgments supreme and then kierkegaard will argue the whole existence of the human race is rounded off in itself in a perfect sphere and the ethical is at once its limit and its completion god becomes an invisible vanishing point an impotent thought his power being only in the ethical what what soren is getting at what the author is getting at who wrote this book um uh, Claire Carlisle Is that this happens in liberal, in liberal circles with uh, the Christian religion is people deny its power. They think there's a moral, guiding principle in Christianity, like love your love your neighbor, love your enemy, do good to those who don't do good to you, uh, be charitable towards the poor. You know, maybe be prophetic and and uh, uh, critical towards the rich. But it's purely ethical. They don't believe like Christ has been raised from the dead. They don't believe God has like got control of the supernatural world. He can he can he can kind of like uh, transcend nature with uh, divine acts of of, of physical nature. Uh, God's very much alive. He's very much of a personality. He's not just a series of axioms or the unmoved mover type of idea in, in Greek philosophy. God is personal, and Jesus is personal. And Soren is basically saying when, uh, when God gets reduced to just being kind of an ethical guy, it's not too long until God doesn't exist anymore, period. Because being just ethical is a disembodied, uh, like, like the moral Analects from Confucius or something. So the author continues, Without God, human beings will be left in a world with no divine order, no cosmic justice, and then morality itself will collapse and life will lose its meaning. So this is a quote from Soren out of Fear and Trembling. If there were no eternal consciousness in a human being, if underlying everything there were only a wild fermenting force writhing in dark passions that produced everything, great and insignificant, if a bottomless insatiable emptiness lurked beneath everything, what would life be but despair? if there were no sacred bond that tied humankind together, if one generation after another rose like leaves in the forest, if one generation succeeded another like the singing of the birds in the forest, if the human race passed through the world as a ship through the sea, as the wind through the desert, a thoughtless and futile activity, if an eternal oblivion always hungrily lay in wait for its prey, and there were, were no power strong enough to snatch it away, then how empty and hopeless would life be, or life would be? Uh, Those are direct, that's a direct quote out of uh, Fear and Trembling, which is uh, Soren's, considered probably his deepest book, his his, uh, most polemical book, uh, and there's three stages of the, of the of of humanity which can lead to the religious life. One is the aesthetic, which is somebody lives for pleasure. Not doesn't mean they're a wild man, hedonist, and abusive and a pervert or anything like that. But they want the good life. They want to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. So that that's the aesthetic life. That's the first stage in life's way. The second stage is the ethical, where someone lives beyond just their own pleasure and reducing their pain. Maximizing pleasure and reducing pain. Is they they're concerned about others. They you know they want to live an ethical life, so they have a set of moral principles that guide them. But there's again, there's no no great power in it in the sense that it's divinely inspired. It's it's the ethical life. So you have a lot of uh, non-religious people that could be very ethical. They treat people fairly. They don't lie, um, and that's kind of where a lot of uh, Christians were in Denmark and Copenhagen during Soren's time. Uh, the third stage is being religious. Uh, that's the term that Soren uses. And that term has probably lost a bit of its sheen these days because religious people don't act ethical. So it actually seems like a reversal. But religious to Soren means that the person lives with an individual relationship to God. And it may cause them to have to act in certain ways that run contrary to the group or the society. And this author. Uh, Claire Carl makes the point. Jesus' disciples broke with the laws of their community, brought shame upon their families, with no guarantee that following their subversive, troublemaking teacher would bring the spiritual rewards they hoped for. So they were in the religious sphere versus the ethical or the aesthetic. If 18 centuries later, faith now means living an upright life, doing what everyone else agrees is the right thing, then ethics and religion must be prized apart again uh, to show that there must be a breach between them and then it once beca- uh, once again becomes possible to ask whether anyone is prepared to cross it it doesn't mean jesus and his disciples acted in any way contrary to loving god and loving their neighbor but they broke a lot of social conventions they treated people that were despised with respect or jesus taught them to do that uh, people that were considered traditionally enemies of the Jews. Uh, they lived humble lives. They didn't uh, acquire material wealth on the back of the poor. Um, there's a lot of Christian ethics that uh, Jesus brought to the world that ran contrary to the uh, the ethical life. Um, Jesus said if you... Love those who love you. There's really no moral reward in that because even the sinners do that. So, in the end, the religious life forces a person and, and compels a person to have their relationship with God dictate their actions on this on this planet. And they believe in eternity because they believe that their character is being developed for something beyond this world. If it's only this world, uh, there's not much re- reason to be ethical. You may decide to be because that's the kind of person you are. But in the end, if it's all material, it doesn't really matter. It's just one pile of this versus one pile of that. It's hard to make moral judgments on the basis of just materialism. It can be done, but it's, it's a leap of faith that makes Christianity's leap of faith look a lot smaller in comparison. So that's it for today. We'll see you again on Wednesday. Thanks for your listenership. I'll see you down the road.